In a few minutes we have, turn to Micah chapter 5. Micah 5, uh, that is among the minor prophets near the end of your, your Old Testament. Uh, some of us will need to just go to the table of contents. That, that's okay to look in the table of contents. Micah, not to be confused with Malachi. Uh, that always confused me. Almost as bad as the proximity of Zechariah and Zephaniah. That just, that was even worse. So, uh, but Micah chapter 5. We want to read the first six verses. I failed to look up where it is in your pew Bibles. Um, so Micah chapter 5. See so if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The prophet Micah writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall dwell secure. For now uh, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes to our land and, and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at the, its entrances. He shall deliver us from Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as always, we ask, open our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, our heart, and our minds, uh, that we would be transformed by your word, that we would see uh, the the city of Messiah, Bethlehem. Uh, we may rejoice at what sort of Messiah he is. And may I decrease that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. It, it may be surprising to a lot of people, but if, if you go back into the history pages of Christmas traditions throughout Europe and even a little bit in America, you will find that a lot of your Christmas traditions were quite dark. Uh, they were significantly dark. And uh, often they were odd and weird traditions. Uh, in fact, for many years until really mid to early 20th century, one of the traditions coming out of Thanksgiving was that little kids would wear masks and go around asking for treats. Can you guess where we moved that little celebration from, right? And here it is Thanksgiving and random people come knocking on your door. I find that slightly uh, disturbing. But nevertheless, if you read a lot of the old stories, the fables and myths and everything that, that would be told and celebrated around Christmas, many of them were quite dark. Perhaps the most prominent example I can give you that maybe already it's coming to your mind. It was a book written by a very prominent English writer. In fact, perhaps one of the greatest English writers, at least in terms of legacy and everything else, the last 200 years, give or take, um, wrote a Christmas story involving ghosts. And that story is, of course, the Christmas Carol, by which four ghosts haunt Mr. Scrooge at night. It's a creepy story. Read it in, in, in Dickens' original version, and it is a, a, quite a, a creepy story. And so what Dickens does is he, he, he moves us into a new era where Christmas is jolly and all that sort of stuff, which is later hijacked by Coca-Cola. But he's, but he's bridging it with an age where stories around Christmas were very dark. Now, to us, it's, it's an odd thing to combine, a, a dark, 
dreary, eerie sort of world with the hope that is Christmas. But in many ways, it makes sense. Because if Christmas is the good news, there is joy and peace in the world, then we understand that the light shines the brightest where it is the darkest. And we get something like that here in Micah. Now, I suspect uh, many of us don't make a habit of reading the book of Micah. You don't have to admit that in church, uh, but let me just go ahead and make that assumption. Uh, And so our familiarity with Micah might be limited. Let me see if I can just summarize this minor prophet. He's called minor not because he's insignificant, but because it's shorter than some of the more major prophets like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. Uh, But Micah, like many of the minor prophets, is appalled by both the rampant injustice that runs throughout all of Israel, and uh, he is warning them of their false sense of security. So long as we have uh, the line of David upon the throne, so long as we have an army, so long as we have an economy, so long as we have these sort of things, then uh, what's the worst that can happen to us? And so what we see then is because of Judah's sins and their false sense of securities, Michael's message is one of wrath and judgment. For example, in chapters 1 and 2, uh, there is a general warning to the Israelites that God's judgment will soon fall upon them. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 3, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them, houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. More specifically, in chapters 3 and 4, we get specific condemnation of spiritual and political rulers of Judah. He starts by criticizing the politicians of his day, the Jewish politicians, the political leaders. He then turns to the prophets of his day, the priests and the prophets, which then leads to a summary in chapter 3, verses 9 and 12. He says, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood, Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. I'm reminded whenever I read Micah's words there at the end of chapter 3, I'm reminded of uh, the prophet Jeremiah who was warning of the invasion of the Babylonians when he said an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority. And here's the key. My people love it so. So what we get then, starting in chapter 4, is judgment itself and the prophecies of those judgments. And they come in, in, in three uh, uh, sections, and they begin with the word now. Uh, sometimes the prophet does all the word for, uh, work for you, right? Chapter 4, verse 9, it'll start with the word now. That's the first uh, warning. The second is verse 11 of chapter 4. Again, it starts with the word now. And then you see in the passage that we just read chapter 5, verse 1, now. 
So you see then there is a sequence of judgments, really, at least in this section of the book, climaxing to the section that we give our attention to here. The first two now prophecies emphasize the distress of Judah. The prophet's main point is that God's plan cannot be thwarted. Judah will suffer, yet we see particularly in this third prophecy, God will deliver them in the end. So it is unmistakable in Micah's message that God is angry at Judah, his chosen people whom he redeemed out of slavery. You see then, this is a dark message. And it leads the the people of Israel to ask, have they been rejected by God? Because we struggle with anger and wrath because we associate anger and wrath with, with rejection and disappointment and disapproval. Has Judah, Michael might be asking, or the reader might be asking, finally crossed the line and thus be forever banished from the love of God? Well, then that is where we come in here in chapter 5 with the messianic hope that Micah gives everyone. Notice there in verse 1, now muster yourselves in troops, right? This is really God talking smack to them, right? Gather the whole army and let's, let's, let's just throw down, if you will. You take your army, I'll take mine, and let's see who wins. This, of course, is a call to war. And what we see then is the nations, some will see this as the Assyrians, highlight later in, in verses 5 and 6. Some will see this as a future prophecy regarding Babylon. We won't chase those rabbits. Uh, but this is a calling of, of the nations under the direction of God as a judgment upon the people of God are being mustered. So, so Judah had better get ready and because war is about to happen and they are about to be uh, defeated. Notice they're the daughter of troops, likely a reference to Jerusalem where, where they would have the primary base of troops. And remember that one of Micah's condemnations of, of Judah is that they thought so long as there was a descendant of David upon the throne, so long as we had high walls and we were located on top of a large rocky hill, so long as we had an army, so long as we had an economy, no one can get us. And God is saying, you can muster all the troops you want. You can find yourself behind those walls as long as you want, but you will fall under the judgment of God. Notice there again, verse 1, they have laid siege against us. Again, this is either Micah looking back with the Assyrians with an interpretive lens, or it's looking forward to the Babylonians uh, with, uh, with a sort of prophecy. You notice that he talks about a striking on the cheek. That's language of humility. To strike with a rod involves pain. This is all a very depressing message, particularly to the first readers. Micah is saying the judgment is about to fall. He's prophesying that soon there will not be a son of David upon the throne. And that, and that is, again, where their security lies. So what we find then in the Old Testament is the Old Testament prophets, particularly the, the ones we read in Scripture, they often show up in what appears to be the best of times to warn of Israel of the worst of times with the promise that better times will come when Messiah arrives. In a nutshell is what you're getting with most of the, the prophets, right? They arrive during the best of times. To warn of the worst of times and to show them that better times are coming when Messiah comes. 
So notice how God will save Judah there in verse two. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, in our study of Bethlehem, we've seen that Ephrathah was the original term for Bethlehem. So there's parallelism here. Uh, and each word has specific meaning. Ephrathah means fruitful, Bethlehem, house of bread. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. How will God save Judah? His answer is not with kings, not with princes, or with an army, but with an unlikely hero. Notice here that, that Micah gives us the exact location where the Messiah will be born, this future ruler. By the way, notice that the future ruler will rule over Israel, not just the southern clan, not just southern Israel, Judah, the southern nation. All of united Israel he will rule. And it's going to be right there in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And everyone knew exactly where that was. This is why, as we just read in, in Matthew 2, that when uh, the Magi came, I, I, I prefer the term wise men, but some of you women chuckle every time I say that, right? Uh, wise men, I'd be surprised if there was three. Um, it's, it's like, it's like a, a state worker, right? <laughs> I mean, that's just a, a contradiction of terms. Anyways, uh, uh, when, when the Magi come to what they perceive to be the king of Israel, Herod, and, and they say, well, we're looking for this king. And, and Herod says, okay, well, let's, let's see where all the smart theologians and scholars and, and Bible commentators tell Where is Messiah supposed to be born? They say, oh, it's right there in Micah 5, verse 2, Bethlehem. That's where they're going to go. So where does the Magi go? They go uh, to look for Messiah. Now, we need to note here in this passage what it is that Micah says about this coming Messiah, this coming ruler. First of all, he emphasizes his humbled birth. The hope of Israel is found in an unusual place. In the Nativity passages, all of them, Christ's humble birth is paramount. He's born to an unlikely, still unmarried couple. He's laid in a feeding trough. He is first visited not by grandparents or by uh, 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 ambassadors of the nations. He's, he's visited by lowly shepherds. And the rest of his life is one of humility. The incarnate God has no house or home. And the eternal God is barely known outside of his hometown in Galilee. What does that final verse of the little town of Bethlehem say? Oh, silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts the human hearts, the blessing of this heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. So not only does the text emphasize his humbled uh, birth, but also his divine origin. Notice the language there from long ago, from, from days of eternity. The language makes it clear that this promised ruler is divine. His beginning is not at his birth. It is before time itself. He is eternal, separate from the Father, yet equal with and one with him. And again, remember the context of this entire prophecy. Judah is under God's judgment. And whether he's looking back at the Assyrians or forward to the Babylonian captivity, they are to understand these events as an act of God's judgment. Yet we see here the divine one being born in Bethlehem, a humbled place to say the least. God extending grace and forgiveness. Thirdly, the text wants to emphasize the one coming is a king. No king 
um, was born a king. You ever thought about that? Now, granted, historically, there are examples of that, right? Whenever uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, was pregnant, everyone understood this is king. Shortly after his birth, she was no longer queen. So, you know, it, it, yes, it, some of that can, can indeed happen. But as a general rule, we understand that first you become a prince, then you become king. Yet Jesus is rarely, really, I can think of only one passage, is he ever called a prince? And in that context, he's called a prince of peace. But he's virtually always referred to as king. And not just any king, but an eternal king. Spurgeon uh, comments, quote, The moment that he came on earth, he was a king. He did not wait to his majority that he might take his empire. But as soon as his eye greeted the sunshine, he was a king. For the moment that his little hands grasped anything, they grasped a scepter. As soon as his his pulse beat, his blood began to flow, his heart beat royally, and his pulse beat in an imperial measure, and his blood flowed in a kingly current. He was born king. And not only that, he is shepherd. He is not a dictator king. He is a shepherd king. Who, again, are the two groups that visit Jesus in the nativity? Shepherds at his birth, magi when he is a toddler. Shepherds we get, magi are those who come to crown kings. Thus, in his birth, he is accompanied by shepherds and those who would recognize him as king. And thus, as shepherd king, Jesus leads us to the Father. One born in Bethlehem, a humbled birth, who would rise to become the eternal shepherd king of Israel. So right here, really, in, in a sort of climax of Micah, there is this, this fear among the reader that maybe God has finally rejected his people. God's gotten to the point where he, he is tired of Israel going through the same pattern of obedience, rebellion, obedience, rebellion, obedience, rebellion. And maybe they're wondering, have we, have we finally crossed that line? That God's arms of grace are not long enough to reach us now. And here comes Micah, warning of the darkness of doom, judgment and wrath. A very dark book, if you allow it to be. And right there at its heart, near its middle, is the assurance that despite the judgment of God, Despite the darkness of the message, there is hope, hope found in one born king in Bethlehem. Has God rejected his people? So although this is a message of judgment, it is ultimately in the prophets, a message of grace. In fact, if you want to see this, you can turn near the end, chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, where the prophet says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? who passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. How does he do this? How does he do it? 
Christ enters to the city of sorrow, city of redemption, city of Messiah, to procure forgiveness for the worst of sinners. It's interesting, isn't it, that Michael's broad message is that God condemns the wicked. At the same time, God saves the wicked. The way he condemns unrighteousness might be predictable, but the way by which he saves us is unlikely. Grace is not merited through religion or ritual, but through Christ. Salvation is not granted by success or fame, but through Christ. Freedom is not found in family or friends or wealth, but through Christ. That is what Micah points us to. So when we read of the nativity, where is the Messiah to be born? They turn to a passage in the middle of a judgment warning. And there they find grace. And there they find grace. You see, if, if Christ's coming, according to Micah, is from everlasting, then so must be his love. Spurgeon, in conclusion, I am sure he would not love me so long and then leave off loving me. If he intended to be tired of me, he would have been tired of me long before now. If he had not loved me with a love as deep as hell and as unutterable as the grave, if, if he had not given his whole heart to me, I am sure he would have turned from me long ago. He knew what I would be. He has had long time enough to consider of it. But I am his choice, and there is an end of it. And unworthy as I am, it is not mine to grumble if he is but contented with me. But he is contented with me. He must be contented with me, for he has known me long enough to know my faults. He knows me before I knew myself. Yea, he knew me before I was myself. Long before my members were fashioned, they were written in his book, when as yet there were none of them. His eyes of affection were set on them. He knew how badly I would act towards him, and yet he has continued to love me. You see, if his coming is from ancient of days, if his arrival is an everlasting act, then so is his love. At the end of the day, isn't that the good news of the good news? That even in judgment, even in the darkness, there is light from one born in such humility. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.